I think you just come back to if you don't give the requisite effort, like there's not a place for you here. I think it's a dangerous thought to think you need the talent. You need the behaviors and the principles and the culture and the ethos much more than you need any individual talent. Like collectively, we'll get this done without you. But if you erode my ability to coach this team and have the standards we need, we will not get it done. Welcome to Slapping Glass where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome assistant coach for the Shimane Susanoo Magic in Japan's top professional division, Zico Coronel. Coach Coronel is here today to discuss helping and motivating underperforming players, selecting a tactical approach to a season, and we talk defending ghost screens and Fenerbahce flares during the always fun start, sub, or sit. Coaches looking to both support the podcast as well as connect and learn from coaches around the world, becoming a member of SG Plus does both. Check out slappingglass.com for yearly, monthly, and staff rates to get access to thousands of hours of curated and topical X and O and leadership content. Thanks for the support. We hope to see you there. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Zico Coronel. All right, we are really excited to be joined. Well, it's not it's this morning for me, afternoon for Pat, and evening for you, but for Coach Zico Coronel. Coach, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to it. As are we. And we're going to get into a lot of tactical stuff today on the court, but we wanted to start with some kind of off the court situations and really involving leading and coaching a player that's not meeting expectations. Come into the season, you're hoping that they perform a certain way within your offense, defense, leadership, whatever it is, and they're just not getting it done. And sort of the way that you view coaching and leading that player to help them get a little closer to where those expectations are. I think, first of all, you try to deal with this situation preemptively. So beginning in the recruitment process or the off-season process and the discussions that you have with that player, and obviously you want to sell them on an aspirational view of their role with your team. You've obviously determined you want to sign this player, so you've got to get them over the line. But at the same time, you want to give them a very honest perspective on the role that you're going to have available for them and your vision for them as a player with the team. If they don't like that and it causes them not to sign, though that may be very disappointing in the immediacy, you've probably prevented a future problem. Like it wasn't going to work out. If they sign up based on that discussion, then you know, you're not lying to them or they're not going to get hit by any surprises when the practices start and we start defining the role and the progressions for them and the way that you're going to do their player development with them. So hopefully you preempt any issues. I was very fortunate last season to be the head coach of a legendary club, the best club in New Zealand now with 12 championships, 11, when we commence the season. I've been an assistant coach with them for seven years and the groundwork of the club, you know, kind of helped that process so much. I mean, I can think of a young player that we had coming in with immense potential and he had been with a lowering club previously and without it really being spoken about he already knew like there's a level of seriousness and dedication that he had to bring to the whole season and every single time he was at individuals at practice a promotion whatever it was because of the aura and the ethos of the club so if you've got one of those highly successful clubs then building the legend and any new players coming in, knowing about the way we behave and what makes it a legendary club is very useful. And I guess in an instance, if you have a team or a club that hasn't had that level of success yet, then talking about what type of club do we want this to become? What behaviors do we want to become the behaviors that are endemic, if you like, to this club? And we're in a privileged position because we can be the first you know, we can actually be the one who embeds this into the ethos of this group. So I think that's pretty huge and valuable. You've got to find a way to create that environment. If you do all those things, then hopefully you preempt some of the 
problems that you're discussing. Let's say now this player is in your program, whether you recruited them or not, let's say even like at the high school level where you don't get a chance, well, most high schools to recruit and you just sort of have people that are on your team and you have a talented player that you need to get the ball up the floor, basically, right? You need them to be on the floor, but they're not meeting expectations. Call it maybe laziness. They don't have a high motor. They're unmotivated, whatever it is. What are sort of the levels of coaching interventions you would go through to say, be positive and then slide into being more negative to eventually maybe having to sit? Or what are the different levels you would look at to get this person to be up to the levels you expect? I think first, my message would be to edify the coach who is listening. As a coach, we're nothing without your credibility. What you permit, you promote. And do not let your players behave in a way that causes you to dislike them. So if you've set some kind of boundary or behavior and you let it slide and you lose your credibility, it's a wrap. You're going to get fired. It may not be today, but the clock is ticking. In some ways, like you set the boundary, you have the behaviors, you have the standards. The players may or may not buy in. If they don't buy in, you're going to get fired. If you have no standards, you're going to get fired. If you set the standards and they buy in, maybe you'll get fired. But it's the only one that you have a chance. So that's kind of inevitable. And you have to have your credibility. At least if you leave, people are like, man, this guy had a set of standards and he stuck to them. So I think you have all those things in mind. So you don't let the players' behaviors slide at all. If they're not meeting expectations, I think you call them in for me, you start by telling them that you want this to work out. And we want you to have a highly successful season with us. That's what we're hoping to occur. However, here's the behaviors that are expected of you. You are not meeting them. If this does not change, you will be cut or whatever is within the parameters, what you can do within maybe a larger organization, the contract they have, whatever. They now know the consequence. You know, there's no guesswork and they're given an opportunity to know like this is going to DEFCON for if you do not change things and then it's up to them to change it or not. And in my experience, once the player knows the consequences, it's very rare that they don't fix things. They have to be a pretty genuine a-hole to not do it. And I think most people are fundamentally good. You know, there's obviously the odd person who maybe is yeah. bad, but that's a, it's a rarity. So I think, you know, those are the things. And like, if they don't live up to it, the consequences have to occur. Like you have to win this battle. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't lose it. And if you lose games because of it, hopefully you have an organization that's supportive of the process and edifying you as a coach. If they don't, at least you can look in the mirror and, you know, look at square in the eye. The club may not support you. The management may not support you, but you know, ultimately you have to satisfy yourself. So maybe now moving from off the court to on the court, let's say they're a good person or they meet the expectations sort of in the off the court category, but on the court, for lack of a better word, they're kind of lazy or they're just not playing to the expectations on the court as well. How do you look at or can you motivate that person to be more productive on the court too? For a long time, my preseason start pretty hellaciously. We're going one-on-one -on -one full court. Normally three minutes left, three minutes right on basically a conveyor belt. Offensive rebounds are live. If you ain't good enough to box them out, it's your problem. We're building those mental alertness habits. Mm -hmm. And you're going to go at someone head to head and see who wins. And we're not talking about like jog back, he dribbles up, like fighting for every inch, trying to turn them, bump them, basically let them foul the living daylights out of them. Like this is going to be competitive. We want to build your ability to bring up the ball and stay controlled in a chaotic situation. And we're going to play one-on-one -on -one closeout or one-on-one -on -one check situations. And we're probably going to play three straight stops. And if you give up an O board, it's going to go back to zero. And if you get scored on, it's going to go back to zero. And we're not coming to save you. So we had a third string center, first year out of high school with us this year, would have been one of the very first practices. And we did this drill and he stayed on defense for about 35 minutes. Straight, no breaks, uh -huh. until he finally got three straight stops. He later said it was the hardest thing he's ever had to do. I do not know, but... The message being is like, no one's coming to save you. Like you have to get yourself out of this situation. And hopefully that builds the mental resiliency to be good on the road because you know at some point you're going to play a bad game. You're going to feel the refs are against you. You're not hitting shots. 
And you have to find a way to win this basketball game. And it's like 10 players, a coach, an assistant coach, a manager, you know, you got your little crew and maybe there's three, 4,000 people against you and you have to find a way to get yourself out of the situation and no one's coming to rescue you. So hopefully you build all those mentalities and like they just start to understand there's really no place for it. And hopefully you fix all that stuff in preseason. And once again, I think you just come back to if you don't give the requisite effort, like there's not a place for you here. And I think it's a dangerous thought to think you need the talent. You need the behaviors and the principles and the culture and the ethos much more than you need any individual talent. Like collectively, we'll get this done without you. But if you erode my ability to coach this team and have the standards we need, we will not get it done. Coach, hearing you talk about your, your preseason and building those habits, building that mentality, and, and I guess in a way, trying to build that internal motivation. On the other end, from the coach's side, and in your opinion, how much does external motivation play in developing or changing habits, building habits? Is it fleeting? Can a coach externally motivate a player or a team the whole season, or can you do it for you know every now and then to kind of get the bump, but eventually players are going to resort back to kind of their medium if you don't have the internal motivation. I think the internal motivation is extremely important. And so this is why you have to be very disciplined in the selections that you make about who you sign, who you select to be on your team. If you pick high caliber people who are heavily internally motivated, then let's say arbitrarily they come in at a seven you can turn it up to a nine. Mm -hmm. But if you pick someone who's a two and you try to turn up to a nine, you're going to get the conflict that you kind of alluding to. So yeah, you got to have people that are pretty motivated. A thing I like to talk about, I think normally at the very first meeting is how sacred it is the role of teammate. Like I entrust my dreams and hopes to you, each member in this team that I've selected because I trust that you're a good person to entrust my hopes and dreams with. And reciprocally, you entrust your hopes and dreams to me and each other member of the team. This is a very sacred responsibility. We play a team sport. We've selected to be a part of a team sport. So you cannot achieve your goals without the help of the collective. You'll run into some other team that is more unified and you will eventually lose if you don't work together. So hopefully the people you have really, that speaks to them. And that they're like, yeah, man, I have to be someone who's worthy of all these people around me's hopes and dreams. A lot of them very, very precious. You know, the amount of sacrifices that it's taken for someone to get to this point that they're standing in a professional hardware circle, they've probably sacrificed a lot to be in that position. And, you know, and then maybe edify it with an analogy. Like my first year with the Wellington Saints, my two grandmas had died in the previous time period and I was with another club and felt like I'd done everything I could to try to win a championship, kind of in the honor and the things that that meant to me and I'd learned from them. I just didn't feel like there was other people who had that kind of desire and willing to sacrifice. So when I went to the Wellington Saints, it was like, man, this is a whole bunch of other people with basketball means an awful lot to them. And then it wasn't good, obviously, But our starting point guard, Lindsay Tate, his grandfather died that year and he didn't say much, but a black armband appeared on his singlet and it was like, okay, Linz has got a similar purpose to me. So that's kind of an ally. And we won the championship that year and that meant a lot to me. I'm sure it meant a lot to him. And then the next year, maybe two or three days out from the finals, our manager, his dad died. And so I can remember thinking like, I have to make the level of sacrifice to help honor Phil and his father that I made to honor my own grandparents. And so I think that's the kind of sacred responsibility you have to everyone else in your group to live up to that. And you never know what motivations they may have, or you might know, they might tell you, but you might not. And you never know what develops during the year. Like we're humans. So something unfortunately is going to probably happen. That's unfortunate to a group of 15, 20 people over the course of six, seven months. So hopefully the work that you've put in is puts you in the best possible position to edify that or to in the least know that you have no regrets. There's nothing more you could have done. Coach, great stuff there. I want to pivot a little bit to some tactical conversation and the concept of selecting a tactical strategy for your team and sort of the thought processes and checklists that you would go through when thinking about the best way to approach whatever it is you're going to do offensively, defensively. I think this is a really interesting one, I guess, for me, because 
my 2019 team and we lost the final in the New Zealand league. And then my 2021 team with the, another club and we won the final, probably there were similarities between those two teams, but almost played at polar opposites in terms of the way we played. And so talking to some people in preparation for the podcast, like what do you think would be interesting to you to talk about? They were like, man, we'd like to know why you chose to play so differently with those two teams. And I mean, I think like you have your own ideals and beliefs about what's optimal and you're constantly evolving that through your own thought process and study. But, you know, that's kind of like, I guess what you're aiming towards is can I have a team that can play what I believe is optimal basketball? however you believe that maybe should be played. Yeah. Then I think you have to be pragmatic in the reality. I think you think about like what's going to be your point of difference relative to the opponents, to the league. You know, I don't think you want to be the same. There's different ways you could have a point of difference. I mean, you could be conventional and your point of difference is that you do the ordinary things better than any other team. To a degree, you know, maybe that was say like a peak San Antonio Spurs point of difference was just excellent habits in excess of anyone else. They weren't necessarily doing something like completely outlandishly, like some crazy one three one that messed everyone up or something like that. But they just did things with great excellence. If you have like maybe a belief in the personnel you have that you can get to that point, then maybe you go that route. But if you kind of like, look, we a little bit of a David here, then maybe you have to pick a David strategy. So for example, in 2019, we had a middling budget. The two kind of highest profile, most successful clubs were putting together like amazing rosters. And you know, you're hearing all the rumors and then the announcements and you're like, oh my goodness, this is an amazing team. And you're in the process of putting your team together. And we were like, well, we probably can't really afford to build a team that can just go head to head conventional warfare with this team and beat them at that game. So we don't want this season to go conventionally. We don't want this season to go to plan, you know, how everyone expects it to go because that won't involve us winning. We need there to be variability. We kind of need some kind of crazy outcome to kind of happen. And so how do we build a team that maybe gives a chance of that to occur? So we basically put all our money into six players and then built a bench as cheaply as we possibly could, just tried to find tough guys that didn't have to necessarily, obviously if they were good at basketball, helped. But we wanted our practices to be competitive so they were going to compete hard even if they weren't talented enough to compete with the top six guys. And then we basically decided we would play 40 minutes of five shooters and we led the league in three-point percentage and efficiency and attempts when our five man who was shooting 60% from three on the season went down for the season injured, we were at 43% as a team on the highest volume. And there were other things to it, but we kind of picked a way that we thought, okay, on any given night, we might go ridiculous and could beat a team that we really shouldn't have a part in beating. Whether that really worked, I mean, we lost to the best team all three times we got up. 21 in the third quarter of the final and then they went on a 22-0 run and timeout and quarter times and nothing really stopped it. They were a phenomenal team and our offensive habits were not good enough to impose ourselves when they really turned it up defensively with the size and the physicality and overwhelmed us. So maybe it succeeded. We didn't ultimately knock out Goliath but we gave them everything we had and I think felt proud of our efforts. And then two years later, like the league really changed. So like the Wellington Saints, 12 championships, and the league kind of decided that they were dominating too much. So if it was America, you would be saying the Spurs are amazing, the Patriots are amazing, and everyone would be trying to emulate them and learn from them. But in New yeah. Zealand, we have many good things, but there's kind of a thing called tall poppy syndrome where people try to kind of tear down the best. Mm -hmm. So everyone's trying to tear down the top team and so they emulate them. So they basically changed all the rules. And this happened while I was the new coach. I would have got to coach them in 2020. It didn't happen. I'm sure you can guess why. Yeah. So 2021, it's like, man, everyone's kind of believes that it was money and it was this and it was that and kind of almost disrespecting the previous 11 championships. So we felt like, okay, but if we win it again this year, you can't say that anymore because you change all the rules. And we ended up posting the best net rating of the previous decade and going 18 and two and winning, which 18 and two is kind of par for the course for that club. 
but this wasn't a normal roster that this club has. We were more local, we were more shallow, but studying what was happening, I was like, okay, we're going to have a really big differentiation between our most experienced players and a lot of really young and experienced players. I kind of went from coaching the fastest team to the lowest paced team. And we just really valued every position. And our Kiwi combo guard, who ended up being the league MVP, is going to control every position. Like he can do that most if we play slow and extremely deliberately. And we're going to be in the exactly right positions and we're going to run, sit, sit, sit. And our role players are going to be in a position to do no harm, very restricted roles. They weren't very experienced players, a lot of them like rookies. And so by making them have really restricted roles, it really narrowed what we had to focus on and player development. So we could kind of just like smash out the one, two, three things that they had and get them really good. So the player who ended up being our fifth starter was basically his rookie year. He played in the tournament that replaced the league getting cancelled the year before, which was like a little six-weeky bubble thing. And he ended up leading the league in three-point percentage at 49% for the season. And like part of that was really restricted role, but we just polished it and polished it and polished it till he basically gave us great offensive rebounding, catch and shoot three, and ended up being second in defensive player of the year voting for the league behind our player who won it. And so in some ways, like, you know, really assessing the league, okay, this is a league that's going to in some ways be about how much does your worst players hurt you as opposed to what they do for you. So we kind of were like, let's mitigate the harm that our lower end guys can do, put them in roles where they can thrive and let our best few players have as bigger impact on possessions as possible. And we end up with a 126 offensive rating, which I think most people would be pretty happy with in any league in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Coach, I'm really interested in finding your point of difference, choosing your tactical approach. And to reference back to when you were with the middle budget team or kind of a lower budget team, would you look at then... When you're looking at your opponents and the league, are you looking at your opponents that had the most success, that made the playoffs, went deep in the playoffs? Or are you realistic about kind of what are the teams that are going to be around us and how do we get better than them or how can we beat them? I think there's probably merit in both those approaches, but my thought process is always about like how do we beat the best team in the league? Mm -hmm. Like we're not interested in beating the middling teams or the bad teams. Let's work towards beating the best team. If we do well enough in that, to give ourselves a chance. Like if we're realistic in that, we'll be good enough to beat the middling and the bad teams. Like if we ain't beating them, then we're not very good. Mm -hmm. So like, okay, that strategy might not be the optimal way to approach them, but if we only beat them by 12 instead of 16, because the optimal approach would have been a 16 point win, who really cares? We've got to win, but we need to be working on the optimal approach or what at least we believe is the optimal approach to win the championship. So I think you look at the two, three teams that you think you're going to have to beat to win the title and you start trying to work out how do we need to play to beat that team. And then that, for the most part, is what you focus on all year round and trying to perfect that game plan. When you're looking at those teams, how do you decide or what are you basing your decision on whether to, let's say, zag and do something opposite of what they're doing or, like you said, doing it better than what they're doing? I think you have to have a high understanding of like your personnel relative to their personnel and then how much time is available to you to make changes because mm-hmm. you got a two-week preseason. It's not like you're going to be like, oh, this guy can't shoot, but by the end of preseason, he's going to be one of the best three-point shooters in the league. Like that's unrealistic. So what can you realistically accomplish in the time that's available to you? And so in 2019, I think like it was pretty clear that we're not just going to basically play the same way as the Wellington Saints and be better at playing that way than they are. Like they're too good and they're too experienced and they're too big and they're too physical and they're too well coached for us to just overwhelm them in that way. So can we play in a way that might be problematic for them to play against? Coach, sticking on the theme of like a tactical approach to your season, going to the offensive side of the ball, I know you've played and coach teams with great pace and getting a lot of shots up and whatnot. How do you think about the different segments of your offense, say the first eight to 10 seconds in transition that then flows into sort of the middle, the meat of your offense where maybe you're running a lot of actions and then also connecting that to say the last eight to 10 seconds where you've got to get a shot up? I think one is 
I think it's got arts law. So like any measure that becomes a target ceases to be a good measure. So I think some coaches almost decide like we're going to get up 43s or we're going to throw 300 passes per game. And like when Golden State threw a lot of passes, that was a byproduct of them playing a certain way. But if you make it a goal to throw 300 passes, well, you're like, if I'm serious about that goal, I'm going to stand next to my teammate, pass it back and forth really quickly and get our passes up. (laughs) doesn't represent good basketball, but we hit the 300 pass goal, like smash that out of the park. (laughs) Where's my bonus? Yeah, right. So I never think about we're going to try to get up a certain amount of shots. I think of a shot threshold. Like what's the high jump bar that this shot has to clear for us to say shoot? And this might be slightly different for each team based on the ability. Like right now we have a couple of players who are exceptionally good at shooting threes off the dribble. So a pull-up three for them is a lot better shot than a pull-up three was for my 2021 Saints team back in New Zealand where we really tried to avoid shots off the dribble. So generally for me, I'd say the shot threshold is a layup or a catch-and-shoot three, open, range, balance, you know, rhythm, those type of things, in the first 18 seconds of the shot clock. And then in the last six seconds of the shot clock, it's kind of like an open shot. Mid-range kind of becomes more into play there. I kind of let my target player have a little bit more latitude to take not really 20-foot twos, but like paint pulls, like the 13 to 14, 15 feet. But it has to be very specific reasoning. Like this is really to break a team that is either doing a lot of run-ons. So what Will Voigt preaches where they're kind of like assuming you'll just dribble through the mid-range and not look to shoot so they can run off and leave you wide open until you're picked up by the rotating guy yeah so if they're playing that way then you might let your target player pull up in the gap from say like 15 feet to force them to stay with you longer and then they're going to be late to run on to the kick out or if they're playing in deep drops in the pick and roll then there might be like that 13 foot 12 foot little paint pull but this is our most talented player this is not I'm not a very good shooter, so let me make the maths also not in my art in my favor by taking a long two. Like, how about you not shoot (laughs) and get to the next action? So we get a two-on-one second side action, a red tactic. It's not like kind of like baseball where it stops and there's no real connection between the offense and the defense. So for me, a lot of times, and when I first did this in 2012, I called it lather, rinse, repeat. Because I was kind of like, you don't fail doing your shampoo in the morning. So hopefully this makes it like a low pressure type (laughs) mentality to our players like this is an everyday occurrence which we succeed in just like how you wash your hair in the morning but it's kind of like chronologically you start you could choose where you started but I like to start with like we've shot the ball what's the first job we need to do and it could be completely different depending on your philosophy so you could be like a tag up team like Aaron Fern preaches then the first thing you need to do is tag up you could be a Greg Popovich basically everyone get back Okay, then everyone needs to get back. So it doesn't really matter what your belief is, but there's a first task that you need to accomplish. And then generally there's a second task and a third task. It won't always be the same, but you can mostly predict the chronological order of what you're going to need to do and execute defensively. And that's going to ultimately end in, I mean, it's great if it's a steal, but most of the time a box out and securing a defensive rebound. And that will lead into the first task of our offense. And then once again, depending on how you like to play offense, that could be different. So, you know, we sometimes use the term buzzsaw for this concept Mm -hmm. because you're getting it spinning. You can get your buzzsaw spinning super fast if that's the way you want to play. It could spin a little slower if you want to be a more of a controlled team. Both can work. So this kind of occurs on steals, misses, makes. You could choose to play differently on makes and say, this is call a set time. That would be a place where a coach could dictate the tempo of which they're going to play and how controlled and execution-based they're going to play. You could do that on misses. You could do it on turnovers if you want. That's up to you. I think a real defining one, of course, is if you choose to play as a fast-paced team, violation, refs touch or dead ball, however you want to characterize it, this is a chance to be precise. The buzzsaw's kind of stopped. Okay, let's call a specific set. A lot of times that set, like if you're playing with a flow, a principle-based offense, maybe the set highlights something that's low frequency but could be good for you. So maybe within your flow, you get very limited post touches, for example. Okay, well, now let's call a set that involves getting a post touch so that we kind of 
involve that into the offense, especially if you have someone who's capable. If you don't have any good post players, well, then you wouldn't do that. But it's a chance to attack in a different way. You're going to take that shot. You're into your tag ups. You're into your get backs and the buzzsaw is spinning again. Free throws is one where you can probably choose. Do you want to be a buzzsaw on that? Do you want to be surgical precision team? So for like my 2019 team that we played high pace to try to increase the variance, we were much more spin, 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 spin as many situations as we could, including we were trying to get clapback scores on free throws. So they make the free throw and can we score back within two, three seconds? It's amazing how many times people screw up their D-trans off free throw situation. It's amazing how many times you're coaching a team that screws it up and you just can't believe it. Mm-hmm. You're like, I can't believe we're talking about this on video again. Fellas, like you had 35 <laughs> seconds to get organized and you still, in the two seconds that yep. the ball went in the air, that's when you decided you'd talk about your matchups while the guy's running behind us. But it happens. Not normally against the best team. So that's kind of a thing I looked at a lot my 2019, I was like, who cares really what happened in the regular season? Let's analyze very carefully the playoff games. And in the playoff games, you don't get the quick scores on free throws. So I was like, okay, free throws is going to be definitely a runner set situation because we're preparing to win the final, not regular season games. And then like it's so the players have to think so differently because you're like, when we call a set, we impose our execution. You honor the whiteboard you honor the design, you only really break out of it to find something very juicy. Like if you're going to break the playoff to go get a layout, cool. If you're going to break the playoff for something alternative, like we're in the middle of the play that you break it off because you want to run pick and roll and that wasn't what the play called for, just run the play that we had and the triggers and everything that we were going to get to. You don't need to break it off for something else. Mm -hmm. If you're going to break it off, it better be for something great and terminal and high percentage and exceeding our shot threshold. So we really want to impose our execution and be surgical in those moments. If you play by principle, you might not be quite as surgical. 2021, we want to play slower pace. We basically treated every position as a surgical position. We probably ran off steals. That was about it. Coach, you said a lot of great stuff there. So two little tangents I'd like to take with you is first, what would you guys do on the clapback situations or attacking after free throws? I mean, we basically in 2021, that was a chance to call a play from our playbooks. There wasn't like a, this is the play we always run in this situation. Okay. And it was a chance to communicate it. And the 2019 situation, we treated that as a principled situation, like get this out quick and try to run it straight back at them. Okay. So it was just more playing, like emphasizing the tempo of the action and not like one specific design like we're in our clapback play you could certainly do that and i've given consideration to that like there's a little play that tenerife runs where they have like a screen the screener play Mm -hmm. and then they kind of run that and they kind of lull you to sleep and shermadini gets maybe a couple of cross screens and posts up and then once they kind of i call it a major conic so i don't know if you're familiar with enemy at the gates the movie And I don't think it's that factual, but (laughs) but it works for this. So like Major Koenig is putting dummies around Stalingrad. And the first time the Soviet sniper comes around the corner, he freaks out. Shit, he's got me. And then he realizes, oh, it's just a dummy. And over the course of the, I think it's a week, over the course of the week, he gets really accustomed to like, I'm going to come around this corner and don't freak out. There's going to be a dummy sitting there. Disregard it. And then by maybe day six or seven, Major Koenig, who's the German sniper, removes the dummy and puts himself there. So now, you know, you load to sleep, you come around the corner, that's mm-hmm. just a dummy. Now it's the real deal. So, you know, in some ways over the course of the season, you're setting up your major conics. So we got this. If, so if you do this, I thought about doing this and just basically, you know, things you put in your playbook, not all come to fruition. Cross screen, mm-hmm. cross screen, cross screen, cross screen, cross screen, post free throw. And then wait till we're playing kind of the smart coach who's going to be prepared and then hit them with the spin back, reject the cross screen and hit them on the strong side and get the initial side. And Tenerife, I don't know if they use it quite to that same thought process, but they definitely have that couplet of plays. And Marcelina Huerta sells it beautifully as he does Mm -hmm. so many things, which I'm sure you guys are aware. And so (laughs) like that was kind of a little bit of a thought process, but you know, sometimes you get so good at your flow offense that you start being like, yeah, we could call a set now. Man, let's just run our flow. We're killing in that. Yeah. So let's stick with it. It's mm-hmm. the thing we know best. No, that's great. And then my second one, Coach, is hearing you talk about 
after dead balls, when you want to be precise and your precision run a play, and you mentioned you have to have something really juicy to break the play. And so I'm starting to think kind of building the confidence with your players throughout the season to know to break the play and know when to break it. Because I'm assuming when you get in the playoffs and you're so well scouted, it's really going to probably come down to being able to successfully break or attack when they're taking away the main action of that set. Yes and no. I would think one, you build your defense to be the best defense in the league. That's what you're working towards. So, mm-hmm. and we had that, right? Like, so we had the number one offensive rating and the number one defensive rating. I think in the last decade, we had the number one offensive rating of the last decade. And we had about the number four defensive rating of the last decades. So there was a few teams who were better defensively than us. Statistically, you know, it's all relative to the competition. There was stronger teams who played in stronger leagues before they changed the rules. But the benefit to us was anytime we had to execute a play at practice, we had to do it against great defense, a better defense than we had to execute it against in the games. And like we won our first six games by maybe like an average of 26 points or something. And teams just weren't able to execute against us because their defense weren't that good. So their practices, like they were probably scoring easy and they had never seen anything like we were able to present to them and their defense wasn't that good. So they couldn't stop us. We're like, man, this is easy compared to practice. And I think some teams kind of learned a lot from playing us and were like, oh yeah, that's how hard you have to try. And that's how disruptive you have to be. So I think you try to get good enough to impose your execution so that you can get what you want. Yes, there's going to be times where they take away the main option, but I think a well-designed play includes free-flowing counters and the counters Mm -hmm. should punish them for like so that you don't want the counter just to continue the offense because then it's like not really bad for them like we Mm -hmm. denied this and all they did was continue the offense so we took them out of option one and we didn't get punished for it you want the counter to be if we deny this and they counter we get punched in the mouth that's what will make us think twice about taking away option one is that option two almost was more problematic Mm-hmm. It's kind of one of those bummers. I'm sure you see it sometimes where you're like watching a great clip and you're just like, man, come on, make the shot. Like we got to post this on Twitter. <laughs> and like, so yeah. we had one of those like deep in the final where they denied the number one option coming back. We hit the flash and then our big throw it between his legs to the cutter, which was like, okay, you busting this out with three minutes to go, but you're extremely intelligent <laughs> and skilled passer. So and then we like make a brilliant yeah. kick out and a domino sequence. I unfortunately, missed the three at the end of it, but you need it to be like that. Like you deny the top, it leads to something worse for you. So you kind of, in some ways, want to put them in those kind of binds. So you have to be thinking about having choke points be eliminated. You don't want choke points in your offense where they can literally grind to a halt. If you have those, you've got to think more deeply about your design. Coach, this has been fantastic so far. We want to move into a, a segment we call start, sub, or sit, which is kind of a fun, quick hitting round where we'll give you three options and ask you to start one, to sub one, and then to sit one. And we can have a little discussion from there. So coach, if you're all set, we'll dive in with this. Yeah. I'm just kind of laughing because I know like obviously what you've remixed this from. I was like, okay, we can't, we got to be PC. We can't call it like FMK, right? <laughs> <laughs> For sure. (laughs) So (laughs) the theme for this first question is guarding the ghost screen. Okay. Ghost screens very popular all over the place now. And so the question is always, how do you guard it? And so give you these three options on guarding the ghost screen, automatically switching it no matter what we're going to no screen, no scheme. So we're only switching on contact or the third option is just blow it up and double it. So start sub or sit those three options on guarding a ghost screen. This is an interesting one because I can remember like some fellow colleagues at the National Coaching Convention having a very long discussion about this question. And whenever it comes up with the players at Scout, you know, you're going through walkthrough, then this invariably becomes a debate. And I think, and so I'm sorry, like not trying to disrespect the question, but the question misses the point. Like if you're going to let them be variable in the timing, like they're going to set sometimes, they're going to go sometimes, it's going to be confusing And no matter which one of those three options you pick, there's going to be breakdowns, miscommunications, players confused. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So I really believe the answer to this is you have to push them into the screen. So if you're going to get close enough to go screen it, we're going to hulk you or push you as a screener and be very physical with you. And basically, like, if you want to get close enough to go screen, we're going to make you actually screen. And then there is a screen. And then we've kind of eliminated the confusion that the ghost causes. So I guess in my answer to this would be, I know that I'm starting push switching mm-hmm. Then everything else is benched. If they set a ghost screen on us and we don't control the screener, there's no discussion of plan B and plan C on this. That just gives bailouts to the players. All I'm going to do is talk to the screener, is defender, and like, you didn't push switch it. Sure. That's the solution. Like, you fix your shit. We'll sub you out. Sorry, I know that doesn't conform to no. that. <laughs> what is the technique to the pushing them into the screen and obviously doing it without fouling? Well, I think you want to err on fouling as much as you can. Okay. Right? We led the league in fouls and led the league in defense. And that's partly... I guess, like, there's a nature of the fouls that you're talking about. We're not trying to talk about just terrible hacks and stupid no. fouls within the bonus, but like being extremely physical into bottom hips, no back doors, trying to blow up actions, swiping. Like we're just like, if you try to run a handoff against us, we're going to try to turn this into an absolute shit show. Like the guy guarding mm-hmm. the cutter is going to try to hit the ball. The guy guarding the guy making the handoff is going to try to hit the ball. We may get a foul, but we want to create a situation where if you retain position, you're like just happy that you retain position. You're not trying to score out of it. And so yeah. – I mean, Brad Newley plays for the Melbourne United now. He's an Australian player, legend, you know, late 30s now. And he's so good at this. You just like don't run handoffs against him. Like if you go to do a handoff, you see him marking the cutter, just turn around and go the other way. It's invariable. <laughs> he's going to steal the ball if you go through with this. And yeah. so I've kind of almost forgotten what the f- options were and what the question was. But it's being like physical, obviously, is partly this is strength and conditioning. It's functional strength, it's core strength, it's all that work you do in the weight room. This is things that you've got to talk to your strength and conditioning staff about. We need guys who can be like in kind of shield positions with their forearm and and exert a lot of force in a static position, using it like a shield, not a weapon that you're throwing, but, Mm -hmm. you know, they can exert. Uh, Sometimes there's benefits to the physics. If you push someone right at the top of the femoral head, right under the hip joint, If you try to open a door and for some reason the carpenters put the hinge and the handle on the same side, it's extremely hard to open said door. You have to apply Mm -hmm. so much force. The reason it's easy is because like the handle's on the opposite side to the hinges. So if you understand where the hinges are in the human skeletal system and you apply your force right at the hinge point, if someone pushes you there, you don't have to be very strong to completely control their femur. So this can be little techniques like that and your understanding of the biomechanics that can allow you to not have to push very hard so it doesn't look like a foul, but you can completely control the movement of that offensive player. Our next one for you, Coach, is hard to defend offensive principles. Start, sub, or sit. Sending random flares on drives. Cuts off the corner on penetration or grenade handoffs out of the post. So we're saying start means the hardest of those three. Yeah, that would so that yeah. your offense would do that is going to give the defense the most fits. Well, we used Fenner Flares last year from Ryan Pannone, who informed our team a lot. He deserves credit for the things he shares. So I'm going to start that. We had to invest a lot to get good at recognizing the situation we would only ever do it on like so we're isolating against the turtle at the top i said we didn't want to shoot pull up jump shots that wasn't a strength for us Mm -hmm. so i don't want our isolations to just be one dude dribbling at the top and then the big kind of gap 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 and then we shoot a pull up three on him and probably miss it like that wasn't a great shot for us and our target player who was the mvp of the league I mean, he's worked so hard and his best attribute, Dion Prewster, now is his passing. So I wanted him to be like able to be up there and have the two flares so that he could use his passing game. And if they chased off the elbows, then he could get downhill through the gaps. And myself and my good friend, Ross McMains, we joked about it all year because we had so many good exemplars and missed the shot on this time and time again. We led the league in three-point percentage, but not in this uh, particular situation. But we finally got a really good one in the semifinal. And my 42-year-old 
who started the season as an assistant coach and then our starting three-man blew out his ACL before the season started. And he asked me, what can I do to help? And I know he asked me as a coach and I just said, play. And uh, <laughs> two months later, he was in the opening night lineup and had a great season as our first wing off the bench, coming out of retirement after seven years. So coaches yeah. out there, if you're still in shape, <laughs> it can happen for you. Yeah. you yeah. knowledge, you'll be a better player. <laughs> the one I'm going to set is the cuts off the corner. Not because it's cuts off the corner in itself is inherently bad, because there's certainly situations where it can be really good. Like I've had teams that use that going into corner zoom and cut off the corner and get cheap layups off the back cut like Steve Nash used to do in sort of 04, 05, mm-hmm. 06, and just directly copied it from that. But the reason I'll say sit is because the number of times players cut for no reason and you're like, stay still. The value of being a good shooter who just stays still in the corner and has gravity is so valuable. And like, if we're trying to run mm-hmm. pick and roll, I want a no one spacing, not dudes creeping in and cutting off corners for no reason and killing the spacing. And we kind of throwing to spots in some ways, not maybe quite, but if they tagging off that corner and I skip it to the backside corner and you're not there, that's not on the passer. Like that's on you. Yeah. You're supposed to be in the backside corner. He threw it to the correct position and for God unknown reason you were cutting, that's on you. And we had Mm -hmm. like an amazing one during the year where we had our roller and he basically did like a 360 blind pass kick out to the backside corner for someone for three. And it was like, he can only do that because he basically knows exactly where all his options will be. Right. If we have people lifting and cutting and moving for no purpose, then you kind of lose that. So I think like at youth basketball, a lot of times it's like almost oh, standing still is a bad thing. And so players are like compelled, like i got to move somewhere. Like the chipmunk and hoodwinked, i got to do something. <laughs> and a lot of times like, no, like just chill out, be a good shooter, put the work in to be a good shooter, and then just stand behind that three-point line and take someone out of the defense. And I think if you're trying to, teach that to youth players in some ways it's like almost getting them to play with increasing numbers on the court or decreasing numbers like it's easiest to score one-on-one so if you space Mm -hmm. and occupy someone it's easier the more people we put on the court the harder it gets and i'm sure i don't know maybe if this happens in the u.s as much but i'm sure a lot of people at least new zealand kids have definitely experienced it as like the pe game where like for some reason they want to play basketball and the kids are like we don't want to organize it where there's like ins and outs or whatever because they just want to be on so now we've got like 13 on 13 basketball and the basketball kids look terrible because they're like, can't do anything and there's no spacing. And in New Zealand, there's invariably some rugby kids who are like tapping the shit out of them. Like, yo, they're in a foul. Only took his head off. What are you talking about? And so, like, yeah. like so spacing, fellas, right? It really yeah. matters. And another thing I would say to finish that is we all, I imagine, believe spacing is important as coaches. And the question I put to everyone is, when is the last time you praised one of your players for good spacing? Because I think a lot of times it's really like great pass, great shot. And then maybe jokingly, you're like, way to stand in the corner. But in reality, you actually should be 100% genuine, like hell of a job being in the right position and hell of a job of working Mm -hmm. so hard on your catch and shoot game that your man marked you when you stood in that corner and opened up that role. That has to be a part of the praise package because if they're not going to get praise for spacing, they're going to start going and looking to try to do things that will get them recognition from the coach. And we just said spacing is so important. Well, then the praise and the edification of your players has to be in alignment with that. Coach, my follow-up on some of that was back with the flare conversation and the random late clock flares. Was it a read or more of a rule for you guys as far as when they would set it, how they would set it, areas they would set it, say at least later in the clock? So the only time we would do it is if we had an isolation on a switch. Okay. Basically, that was part of our coverage solution. So before the year, like I pretty much went through all our spacings, every single conceivable coverage I could think that we might encounter and plan what was going to be our way of preventing the coverage and what was going to be our way of punishing the coverage. And what was I going to teach? And so for a lot of our ones, with slight variants for the spacing, 
basically against switches, our first thought was to downhill the big. Like we're probably talking pick and roll here. Down, well, there was things we'd do to try to prevent the switch prior, like touch screens, mm-hmm. go screens on. But let's say this switch has been enacted now. Mm-hmm. So downhilling the big, if that's not there, the messy pass, so thrown to the two high so that you isolate the single side tag. We're looking high-low. We made the choice not to go straight back to the boomerang unless it was relatively late clock. We like going second side, so we'd look high-low. If it wasn't there, that person would bail out to the dunker spot, and we would go into our second side action. So that would normally be pass, pick, and roll, second side. Okay. And a lot of times, by keeping the flow, and then like that would normally go wing to middle, pick and roll. So when it came back wing to middle, Instead of picking and rolling now, the big who had got the initial switch would duck in. And a lot of times when it went second side, the undersized player would relax like, oh, they're not going to me so that we would get a deep ducking catch. And also the big who was on the guard at the top had generally sunk. So it was like a really extended boomerang with a little action in between. The other thing we found is, is like if they didn't lose attention so they're like oh my goodness i'm marking a guard so they extended or they got so preoccupied like i'm fighting the big guy that second side pick and roll was genuinely two on two with no help side so we found that to be a very beneficial way of playing okay and then when it came back to the top and we're like okay we can't throw the duck in here that's when we went into the fenner flare so my first job was to be the magnet draw the attention the shrink help and everyone in the world thinks they know what's coming now. Like we're going to get in our little box and you're going to play one on five and maybe you make a play, maybe you don't. And so then we would basically just get into the Fenner flares and look to hit those people. I mean, I know Fenerbahce normally yeah. got the slip, but we didn't encounter teams that were really that au fait to what was happening. I mean, we're not playing at the same tactical level as Fenerbahce. Uh-huh. So we just basically got people wide open on the flares or they would chase the flares and basically leave their shrink mm-hmm. positions. And now we did get the one-on-one downhill with no help. Sure. Good stuff. Well, one more start subset titled Tough to Teach. And the theme is footwork. So what type of footwork is the toughest to teach? The start would be the most difficult one, in your opinion. So tough to teach, post footwork, shooting footwork, coming off pins or flares or whatever it is or finishing footwork in traffic, going off two, going off one, Euro steps. So tough to teach those three areas of the game. I think the hardest I would say is probably post footwork. If I can include in that, that it's a modern day post player. So they have to learn all the footwork that goes into playing pick and roll or the footwork that they have to do for short rolls, diagonal dives, the different angles of rolls that they have to do against different coverages, recognizing the coverage, all those type of things especially because you consider who you're teaching it to. Like there's not that many 16 plus people in the world. So the Venn diagram of that height and highly coordinated doesn't cross over that much. So a lot of times you're dealing with someone who this doesn't come easily to them. And even though it seems really basic and the five, 10 coaches out there like showing it really well, because I'm not actually very coordinated. (laughs) So I'm lying, but you know, We think it's easy, but they're like, I'm 7'2", and like I'm kind of become a good basketball player in spite of maybe I wasn't the most coordinated human, but I still became a pro player because do you know some other 7'2 guys? You're like, no, I don't. You're it. <laughs> so, you know, you're teaching someone who maybe finds that really hard. So I'm going to say that starts. I think that the shooting footwork, I think on the perimeter is probably the set just because I think there's probably less variety like okay hopefully you're teaching it in a way that mitigates the number of different footworks there may be obviously some slightly different footwork based on like are you off the cut to the left off the cut to the right the other thing i would think is is like that the variability for this is reduced because if variability caused by the defense is too high the correct response is to not shoot the ball sure mm-hmm. whereas like down in that paint surrounded potentially by so many defenders I guess there's a lot of variety, though I'm someone who very much believes in like make the early easy pass from space. So I'm very big on the kick out. My follow up is just with teaching your bigs to recognize the pick and roll coverage. So I think this begins in preseason where you have that really clear idea of what your coverage solutions are. So you already know exactly what you need to teach them. And in some ways, like individuals, 
the theme might be like little tutorials. Like today, we are basically, the whole theme of this hour individual is on solving the show. And maybe it's out of one spacing. Yeah. And then this afternoon, when we go to team practice, the focus of what primarily will be five on five is going to be like that. So you get a chance to put your individual work into a five on five context. So I think it's that. And then when you come into the games, you're scouting hopefully can inform you of what coverage to anticipate. It's not always 100% true. Like early in the season, it can be hard to know what coverage this team prefers. And of course, you never know when they've changed the coverage, but you can have a pretty good idea of what coverage to anticipate. So now everything that you're doing throughout that week is starting to prepare them for the coverages you're anticipating seeing. So they're getting a whole week, maybe four practices, four individuals, a shoot around and pregame shooting group preparing the footwork to be ready for those things. So some of it is preemptive. If you have very good players, then I think you teach them to read outside the inside eye. So like I'm sprinting into a ball screen and the hoops that way. So I'm looking out my peripheral vision to basically yeah. see what my man is doing. The higher they get or they disappear from my view the more you know that they're going into more likely into aggressive coverage. Obviously, if I can see them sitting back eight feet, then even if they don't intend to be in a conservative coverage, they can't do anything else from that position. They're not going to be eight feet back and then trap it. They just can't. Right. So that can inform me. And another thing that can help is the ball handler. So two years ago, we kind of experienced, I guess it was an experiment, but we hadn't really done it before, where we practiced having the ball handler basically call the reads because they can very much see the screen as defender. So we, I mean, it was really just mm-hmm. pop and roll. We kept it very basic, mm-hmm. but like they're coming and they would just tell the big what to do. Cause I was fine the big and I'm sprinting in. Sometimes it's hard to see how my man's marking me because they're kind of behind me, but the ball hanger running the pick and roll very much can see like if that and drops. And because that was a team where we had the five high percentage three point shooters so we basically like any time we see drops, it's a straight pick and pop for us. Yeah. I don't always agree that that's the correct solution. But for that team, as I said, we had a five man shooting 60% on five attempts a game. If you gave us drops, I mean, 1.8 points per position, like basically borderline can't get more points if we generate a dunk. Yeah. So we would pop with him at any time we could get that opportunity. Yeah, Absolutely. Coach, you're off the start, sub, sit, hot seat. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for going through some of those scenarios with us. One more question for you here as we wrap up. But before we do, thank you again. I know you're up late over in Japan. Uh, Thank you for staying up late and going through all this stuff with us. It's been a lot of fun. So thank you. Yeah, Thank you very much for having me. And I look forward to seeing what kind of crazy stuff I don't realize I said and (laughs) also listening to all the other different podcasts that you guys put out that, you know, give us an opportunity to get better. Thank you. Appreciate that. Coach, the last question we have for you, what is the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? It's it's difficult to pick a singular one. I guess it's in some ways how laterally you think about the word investment, because the thing that comes to mind is time, investing as much time as possible as you can into increasing your knowledge, uh, getting reps, We're so fortunate in New Zealand in some ways that you can coach multiple teams in a year. So a lot of times, like I was an assistant coach in our semi-professional league for I think 13, 14 years before I got my first head coaching opportunity. But at the same time, I could be a head coach, a high school head coach, a junior national team head coach. So the number of reps you get I mean, one year, I think I coached 14 teams in some way, whether it was helping that with that team or head coaching. And so maybe in that one year, you could like kind of go down five pathways or six pathways of like, let's see if I coach a team like this, what outcome happens. And like, I want to experiment with this system. And it kind of makes sense for this group of kids. So let's do that pathway with them. And in all that time, I think in some ways, You know, if you do the same thing 40 years in a row, you don't have 40 years of experience. You have one year of experience replicated 40 times. But if you (laughs) continually are trying to learn early in your coaching career and dabble and experiment and 
I'm going to kind of try everything and get some type of experience like I've coached that before and that before that before then you're kind of getting a lot of experience in a very quick period of time so hopefully you can be a very adaptable coach thank you so much for tuning in to this episode with coach Zico Coronel Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, videos, and much, much more. Have a great week, coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.